Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com, registered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. A special coupon code is available for listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off an audio course subscription. This audio course subscription gives access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With more than 200 hours of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it is only $59 per year with the code KEYS. Visit go.speechtherapypd.com slash keys for more information and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab, outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Triumphs. Welcome. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs podcast and received compensation from speechtherapypd.com. She is a member of ASHA Special Interest Groups 2 and 13, Medical SLP Collective, and the International Association of Oral Facial Myology. Lauren Herman received compensation for this presentation from speechtherapypd.com. She is an author and receives royalties from the sale of her book. She's the content director for Medical SLP Collective. Lauren is a member of ASHA Special Interest Groups 3, 13, and 14, the Radiologic Society of America, and the American Interprofessional Healthcare Collaborative. Welcome to Keys for SLPs. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Our podcast today is titled Keys for SLPs Who Have Said, I Should Write a Book, with our guest, Lauren Herman. Lauren is a medically-based speech-language pathologist who is passionate about raising awareness regarding what SLPs are capable of doing across the lifespan. She is keenly interested in improving interprofessional collaboration. Lauren recently published a book sharing stories of her work experience, along with short stories contributed by other SLPs across the United States. Her book, titled But My Speech is Fine, is meant to dispel the occupational myths of speech-language pathology and take a step in the right direction towards improved awareness of our field. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, we are so happy to have you as a guest on our first live episode. Before we dive into our topic today, I wanna to tell you how much I love your book and appreciate your work. You share stories of courage and determination of patients who find themselves in unfathomable circumstances. And you also share experiences of SLPs who demonstrate grit as they help our patients overcome challenges with speaking, listening, reading, writing, swallowing, communication, and cognition. And as SLPs, we have all experienced trials and tribulations, and we all have experiences to share. Many of us have thought about writing a book, but you did it. And in the process, you created an excellent source to advocate for the field of speech language pathology. We have so much to learn from your process and truly appreciate you sharing your journey with us. So let's talk about taking an idea from the thought, I should write a book to the exclamation, look, my book is on the shelves. Yes, I know. I still can't even believe that, to be honest. So I'm excited to dive in. 
Oh, well, great. Okay, so tell us about your book and the overarching goal behind publishing this book. Yes. So I know I'm not the only one who has thought this, where, you know, so many people don't understand what speech pathologists do. Um, for me, one of the, uh, if not the most common response I would get whenever I introduce myself to patients or clients as their speech therapist was, you know, speech therapy, but my speech is fine. I don't need you. Um, or with physicians, it would be, you know, well, they swallow just fine. They don't need you when really there's so much more we have to offer. So the goal of this book, instead of having to repeat myself over and over and over again to individuals, specific facilities, was to write this book in a story format. So by sharing stories um, in order, in an attempt, a great attempt to uh, raise awareness around the broader scope, primarily the medical scope of speech language pathology. So just going far beyond the lips um, as a way to promote both, um, you know, uh, family members, caregivers, loved ones who uh, might not realize that their loved one could benefit from our services. So hopefully this book will help spark that awareness and help get that service to the people that really could benefit from those services and just create more advocates. Well, that's great. I did, um, in reading your book, one of the things that struck me was how many people um, were late to get speech therapy, you know, a year and a half later, or it was tried and it was stopped, or with some, um, the laryngectomy patient that you mentioned, it was never attempted for a year, and for a whole year, he did not speak. So I think by highlighting the stories, you really tell a story in the process. Absolutely. When I wanted to also just add one more thing too. So there, there's that for the advocacy process that, it, but then also 10% uh, of the book's proceeds are donated towards a scholarship fund for SLP students, both undergrad and grad. So also just kind of making, helping to make the field more accessible as well through this book and through the uh, do donation process as well, and adding resources at the back of the book too for SLPs to help further their education and their learning in the process. I was surprised and impressed with how many resources that you have. And you know what, just for our listeners and viewers out there, this is the book. So <laughs> um, can you just tell us, a I know we we're gonna talk about it at the end, but why don't we go ahead and talk about it now. Um, tell us a little bit about that scholarship, how it came about, and um, how one can apply for it, because I know we might have some students um, out there listening or listening at a later date who could benefit from that scholarship. Sure, absolutely. So the scholarship uh, was created from another SLP. Her name is Sarah Newman, and on Instagram, her account is Today I Learned in Med SLP, and you can access the scholarship which the name of the scholarship fund is the Donna M. Brellen Memorial Scholarship Fund. And that's named after, so it's for her mother. Um, and it's a scholarship that is a crowdfunded scholarship. You can go to todayilearnsinmedslp.com. And again, also 10% of the proceeds of the book will be automatically donated quarterly. Um, but it is a wonderful uh, crowdfunded, crowdsourced scholarship fund that is $500 increments and for any student, and what's really neat about this is part of the application process to earn one of these scholarships is to write an essay about maybe a problem that you see within our field or that you hear about within our field and maybe a potential solution for that. So you kind of contribute to the growth of the field and to, towards bettering our field as a part of the application process. And if you um, get selected and you get the scholarship, you're in the scholarship, then you just get $500, you don't have to send in receipts, you know, sharing where you spend the $500. There's no limits on what you can spend it on. If you need to use it for rent, you can use it for rent. So it's really just a way to make it more accessible uh, to earn the degree because it, it can be an expensive process. It is an expensive process, absolutely. And that's so important to have those resources. Um, so that is exciting. Um, all right. So Describe how a book that highlights speech-language pathology advocates for the field of speech-language pathology. Yeah, and I just love this. So I wholeheartedly believe that the best way to 
pack a punch and your advocacy efforts is by storytelling. It's by sharing real life stories. Um, and you know, I could either tell people, oh, I'm a speech therapist. I work with speech, language, cognition, communication, voice, and swallowing, mm -hmm. or I could guide them on a journey of what I do by navigating them through the lives of patients, clients, students served by SLP. So instead of telling them, you know, oh, we help people with dementia, I can share the time that Joe, a man in his 80s with frontotemporal dementia, tossed a glass of ice in my face when I wanted to evaluate his swallowing once because he thought I had poisoned his tea and how I discovered ways to improve our mutual trust and rapport and even transform his behaviors by making his environment more familiar to him by following his lead, um, by showing dignity and by showing his caregivers better ways to communicate with him, which led to better outcomes. So someone who has a family member with dementia would resonate much more with that story and understand how SLPs can help their loved one on a much deeper level than mm -hmm. if I simply explain that I work with individual dementia and their communication or swallowing. So that's how I think it can really help to advocate for the field of speech language pathology. Well, I agree. And why do you think writing a book about the profession of speech language pathology could have a larger impact on improving awareness in the field versus methods um, like presentations? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, presentations, they are excellent. I've, I've done community presentations. I will always accept an invitation to do a community-based presentation uh, for my private practice. They can really accomplish a lot, but it's that those might reach a limited audience Whereas what's really cool about a book is that it can really get into the hands of anyone. And a book can provide, you know, lessons at night before bed or on the beach during vacation. Right. You can dog ear and highlight important lessons in a book to come back to and easily reference. Um, you can hand someone an entire compilation of inspirational messages and lessons when they may be less motivated to uh, maybe search for a presentation or podcast, or maybe they can't even make it to a, a presentation. So instead of a 15 to 60 minute um, discussion about the profession, um, I wanted to allow people to learn more about our profession through years of experiences, not just of my own, but of SLPs across the US and Puerto Rico at um, a pace that you know, learners are most comfortable with. And also um, you are more likely to understand and retain the message if it's written in a story format. And this is actually what I really wanna talk about just about the book and how this, why I think this, um, this is my path is because there's actually a lot of research out there looking at the power of storytelling and how it can um, create better action. And there's one research article in particular that was published in 2015 and it's uh, titled, Why Inspiring Stories Make Us React, The Neuroscience of Narrative. And I mean, this is probably like hands down my favorite article of all time. I just think it's the coolest thing and it's what I'm all about. It was by a neuroscientist named Dr. Uh, Dr. Paul Zak. And so he starts this article with a story, of course, about how he was on a long flight for work. He couldn't get a whole lot done because there's all this turbulence. So he decided to watch a movie. Um, the movie he saw was um, Million Dollar Baby, which I haven't seen. But um, I haven't seen it either. You haven't? Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I, I've heard wonderful things about it. It makes people cry. And he discusses that. He discusses how he became so deeply absorbed into this movie and that by the end of it, he describes heaving with sloppy sobs coming out of his eyes, nose and mouth. People were looking at him. And once he recovered, he started to wonder what the heck just happened to him that as a neuroscientist, he wanted to know why did a movie and why do certain storylines impact his emotions on a neurochemical level? So he turned this into a research opportunity. And this is where it gets really cool. Just talking about storytelling and writing a book for advocating for yourself and, and even marketing our profession. Um, he created this study where uh, he came up with two separate videos. Um, one evoked this emotional response with a dramatic arc about a child with terminal cancer and his father who was struggling to connect with and enjoy time with his son. And that video ended with the father finding the strength to stay emotionally close to his son until he takes his last breath. Oh. And 
The second video had the same father and son actors spending a day at the zoo, but they made no mention of any terminal illness and any challenges there. Sweet video, but really nothing, you know, nothing else. And both groups of people that were signed to watch whichever video, they were both asked to donate money to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital at the end. So the researcher and his team, they took blood samples before and after participants watched one of the two uh, versions of the video. And uh, what they found was that uh, the narrative with the dramatic arc caused an increase in cortisol and oxytocin. And oxytocin has a positive correlation with feelings of empathy and heightened empathy motivated, it motivates participants to, or in this study, it motivated participants to offer more money to St. Jude's. So the heightened cortisol and empathy um, I guess the author is suggesting that basically an emotionally engaging narratives inspire what he calls post-narrative actions. So being able to really take the time to share my experiences and the experiences of other SLPs across the U.S., particularly in kind of a, like an emotional format for some of these stories, I, I kind of wanted to I get- cried. I cried. <laughs> I don't want to make people- Cry. <laughs> well, I'm a softy, but you know, plus I've been in the trenches and and can remember other patients. And it, anyway, so go ahead. Yeah, exactly. And so using that format, it allowed me to create this opportunity to create more post-narrative action, such as encouraging others to seek speech therapy for their loved ones if they realize, oh my gosh, my my grandmother would benefit, or I know someone, my neighbor would benefit. Um, and finally, you know, funny enough, it it even encouraged my high school English teacher. She, she read the book. She said she sobbed and it encouraged her to actually volunteer at the local university's CSD clinic for students to conduct swallow evaluations. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, that's yeah, so the, great. Power, the power of narrative. It can really get people to move into action. Well, I think it will, if, if the book does get in the hands of university students and if universities um, purchase the book for their SLP students, undergrad and graduate. Um, well, especially for undergrads who might not be um, certain if they're going to go on. Um, I think it will inspire many people to become SLPs. I think that could be the call to action with it as well. That's um, the other goal. Absolutely. Yeah. That is absolutely the other goal. Yep. Yes. And in particular, in one um, chapter, you mentioned the, or maybe more, but the one that I recall, um, the need for bilingual SLPs. And that was a very touching story about um, the need for bilingual SLPs, especially in um, medical, um, you know, medical settings, because interpreters are, you know, sometimes they're hard to get or they're online. Um, there's no replacement for a bilingual SLP. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and I was, I was, I was honored to find a, a bilingual soon to be SLP. She's actually a student, and she has she shared a story, um, particularly about that um, bilingual SLPs and just projects that she's working on to help promote that, um, you know, to help that out in our field. So it's it's incredible to also just see what other SLPs are doing, and I really want to promote that and blast that out there, so we can just continue to grow that. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so with that, with all of these stories, and for other people who are thinking of writing, you know, possibly a, a similar book or um, a book about their niche within the field of SLP, um, we we want to be able to tell these stories, but they need to be HIPAA compliant. So, um, what can you tell our listeners and viewers about being HIPAA compliant uh, when publishing? Yes, and this is. So important. I spent a lot of time researching this before I even started writing anything down. Um, you know, obviously I wanted to make sure I was maintaining my patient's privacy, not just by HIPAA standards, but by my own standards out of just respect and protection to those I've served. It was always a top priority. So I started first, of course, by Google. So just Google searching, you know, writing about patients, HIPAA compliance, um, from blogs to published works to journal articles and anything else in between. Um, and I learned a lot through these blogs and these discussion forums specifically for healthcare authors. And okay. I, was, I was really surprised and excited to see how many 
healthcare authors there are out there. So that kind of gave me the more confidence that, okay, this is very doable if you do this the right way. So a lot of nurses, physicians, other healthcare workers who had shared experiences and lessons through their inspirational stories shared kind of their process. And of course it can be a little difficult, um, you know, because my first and foremost, the top tier is getting uh, signed consents. You know, so that's, and I was able to do that, particularly for stories. So there's one uh, person I write about, I, it's a fake name, K is the name I use, but it's three chapters because her story is so involved. There's mm -hmm. so much, such a unique patient that I knew that I couldn't really fictionalize her, the description right. of her without taking away from the story. So she is someone where um, I work with her so closely for so long, I had her power of attorney's contact information still because we communicated all the time throughout our time together. So that was the first person I called was this patient's power of attorney. Okay. And I remember my heart was just pounding in my chest, in my throat, because I haven't spoken to her in years. And I didn't know if she thought I was crazy for wanting to write a book and talk about her, you know, her family member that I was going to write about. But the response I got, it was just so warm and welcoming. And um, she just told me, she was, oh my gosh, you know, the patient I wanted to write about, she was like, she would be so tickled um, to have her story shared. She apparently prior to this K patient, she lost her speech. And I explained in the book what happened. There's a series of events. Prior to losing her speech, she wanted to share her story. She wanted to tell her story in written format, but just never could. Aww. So our attorney was like, we've got to make this happen. Absolutely. So um, throughout the process, I would share uh, the, the drafts with her and, and she would share it with her, uh, her loved one. And I would get their approval, any edits, things I should tweak, whatever. And so they were there throughout the process. So I had several patients or family members if the patient had passed away um, where I would send them all of my drafts and they were kind of part of the process for approving and then signing the consent for okay. that top here. And then other stories, um, of course, the big question was, well, if I can't, if I don't have their contact information, isn't it against HIPAA to then call the hospital and say, hey, can you give me this patient's contact information? Right, right. right. So it's like, how do I do this? So I spoke with uh, literary lawyers. One of my editors actually specializes in HIPAA and literary law. And so, yeah, so that was really helpful. And so she was explaining in these cases, you create composite characters. So these are where you might pull characteristics from different patients to morph into a totally new description of a person you've never maybe actually worked with, but the experience okay. is there. So. Uh, for example, I might describe a patient as being male in his 30s with a diagnosis of Down syndrome when really maybe the patient was a 56-year-old female with cerebral palsy. Okay. Um, and if the diagnosis itself doesn't change the, the message or the meaning, then I might change those. Um, or even family relationships, if family members were involved, then not identifying like, oh, the, this woman's husband, you know, was okay. part of this say this person's family member or uncle or child or whatever. Um, so fictionalizing the description of the characters um, where it doesn't take away from the story, but it's, it's enough that by reading the description, you'd really have no idea who this person really was. And then on top of that, um, never identifying the facility that I was at when I worked with those patients or even the city or state or region of the country with the exception oh, of Hawaii. Wow. Okay. I do talk about Hawaii, um, but because I, I worked all over the country as a travel therapist too. So I didn't talk about where I was for these experiences, except for in Hawaii, since that was about the uh, cultural uh, considerations and things I learned about the hospital that I worked at in Hawaii. So those are the steps that I took um, to really add layers of protection from getting that signs consent to creating composite characters um, you know, without, without it taking away from the story, um, or even the, uh, fictionalizing descriptions of certain events, but without it taking away from the work of an SLP and what, what I did, you know, and helping someone with aphasia or something. So just the descriptions being fictionalized. And that was also, um, disclosed in the introduction of my book, 
you know, you have to, to disclose that, that names, right. descriptors, everything out there are fictionalized uh, in accordance with HIPAA. Okay. Okay. So that begs me to ask you the question. I just have to know um, your first day of work and the, the cheap SLP, <laughs> please tell me that's true. <laughs> okay. So now you have to share the story because it was just too cute. Yeah, no, because yeah, that was nothing. I've met so many men who were just like him, you know, and there's nothing too specific about him. It was just a funny, a funny, weird incident while I was typing notes, you know, nothing too personal. That story, that story was true. And it's one of my favorite moments as a new SLP. <laughs> Can you tell them what happened? Yes. So and this, I'm, I'm hoping this is what you mean is the story where I was typing in notes. Yes. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yep. so, yes. As a new SLP, my first day on the job at a nursing home, you know, you're nervous. You don't know what's going on. I was given my patient caseload, terrified. Um, and I had time to at least dig into the charts and do my research on the computer. So mm -hmm. as I'm sitting on my computer, looking at the patient's charts, I hear this very distant, high pitched noise, kind of like a mosquito. And because I was so focused on just learning about the caseload and the patients, I just ignored it. But as I continued to focus on my, my research on my computer, that mosquito sound was getting louder and louder and louder. And to the point where it sounded like it was like right up against my ear. And it wasn't until, you know, I turned around in my swivel chair and it was this gentleman who had these like Coke bottle glasses that really made his eyes look larger. He was missing a leg and uh, he, the buzzing was coming from his hearing aid, which is the feedback noise. And mm -hmm. so he came up and he looked at me and he was like, who are you? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm my name's Lauren. I'm, uh, I'm the, the speech therapist. And, you know, he grabs his reacher grabber and taps his ear and he's like, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to speak up. I can't hear too well. And I'm like, oh, I'm Lauren. I'm, I'm the speech therapist. And then he goes, I'm not going to, I don't know if I can cuss on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know, he's like cheap therapist. And he was like, well, I'll be danged. Is this, is this facility losing so much money that they're hiring cheap help now? Oh my gosh. And he just turns around and wheels away. And that's it. That's the whole interaction with him. <laughs> the cheap therapist. That is cheap too therapist. funny. That's how I was. That was, yeah, how I was known on the first day of my job as a speech therapist. <laughs> oh, well, and by the way, your book is also very funny, which also makes it more enjoyable to read. So that was one of the many funny little stories. So, okay. Um, so while writing and publishing a book, it can involve a lot of processes. Um, you, for our audience, have broken it down to seven steps. So seven steps that you need to take in order to take that idea from, I should really write a book to, look, my book is on the shelves. So tell us. Yeah. All right. So these there are seven steps in a nutshell that I took to get published, which of course, you know, doesn't mean that everyone here has to do it the same way, but, and also just to clarify, this is for self-publishing. Um, so really the first thing was to decide, do you want to try to get traditionally published? So being picked up by a traditional publisher, um, or do you want to do self-publishing? Um, and I was originally thinking that I had to get traditionally published if I really wanted to, to be taken seriously. And I honestly could not have been more wrong. Um, so I learned that not only is it much more challenging to get traditionally published, but you, you lose so much of your control, the ownership of your work. Um, and you often end up only earning maybe 10% of royalties after they give you an advance. Whereas with a self-published book, you have total say over things like cover design, title, what goes in the book, it is all you, which I think is wonderful. Um, and you can earn up to with uh, Amazon at 75% of royalties. Oh, wow. So huge difference. Huge difference. Yep. So I decided to just go to self-publishing. So the seven steps that I have are broken down is for the self-publishing route. And so for me, um, I, and I'm, I'm going to give this in the order of, of, had I known then what I know now, this is the order that I would have done it. I didn't okay. do it in this order. Thank you. But this is Thank you. That is so helpful to all of us. Yes. Yeah. Because my order was all over the place. <laughs> so honestly, after I decided to self-publish, the first 
first thing I would have done is um, go ahead and establish a publishing LLC because you do need to have like a publishing company uh, to register your book under um, to get what's called an ISBN, which is just the, the serial number basically. So your book can be registered online. You need to have a publishing company. Um, okay. So it's really easy, you know, to, to start an LLC, a very simple process. And it's for mine, it's a publishing LLC and then the bank accounts too. So that with the royalties that you earn, you have that publishing LLC where the money can be directly deposited into that publishing bank account. So I, the reason why I say make that your first step is because it also makes it very real. You now have a company, you now have a bank account that's dedicated to your book. You put in the time and effort to get that set up. So, you know, if I had something that had locked it in that made it so real, I think I would have been more, I would have had more of a fire under my butt to get it done right. sooner, <laughs> uh, rather than later. That's um, a good point. Yeah, yeah. So that that would have been my first step. Also, because um, you're going to have to spend money on, on other things, which I'll go down later. And I would have preferred to have used like my, my publishing bank accounts for tax purposes. To, to spend it on the services. Oh, okay. Oh, that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. Instead of taking it from my personal account and then obviously you don't get any tax benefits from that. So that's why I say number one is, is start your publishing LLC. So mine is trunk, like an elephant trunk, trunk publishing. Okay. Because I love elephants. Um, so that's <laughs> the only reason why. So that's my publishing LLC. Once you get that, then... I would say step number two is outline and organize or map out, create like a brain map um, or a mind map of your topics, chapters, everything you want to talk about, because you might have everything up in your head, but then just going to your Word document and just starting to type out, which I admit, <laughs> I that was the first thing I did. I just sat on my computer and just typed. <laughs> okay. And it was disorganized. It was disorganized. I didn't really have a real like story arc. So my my book, it follows the lifespan. I, I ended it up having it where it's from NICU, my experience with, uh, well, starting out as a speech therapist, but NICU to aging and end of life. So okay. it, it follows the lifespan. And that's not how it was originally because I just typed. Okay. Um, so did you have an idea of how it was going to be originally? What I, originally, I, I think when I originally thought about this, it was just, I am going to share stories based on different diagnoses. Okay. Um, okay. Within in no particular order. Um, but then I realized that I really also wanted to show the general public and referring professionals that we really have a role across the entire lifespan. So I felt it would be easier if that's how I structured my stories was kind of throughout the aging process and then the different diagnoses too. So, you know, my NICU experience as a grad student um, and neonatal abstinence syndrome and feeding, um, you know, and then moving on with children, teenagers, young adults, adults, older adults, end of life hospice. Um, so I, I ended up, I did eventually create a map, a mind map of all the topics. And that's what really made things click for me. Okay. Um, so that's why I say that should be number two. Two, it, okay, okay. Outline, organize, map out every topic. So again, for me, it was it was the age and the lifespan and then diagnoses. And then um, I branched that out even further to what are the experiences that I have um, that fits those topics? And then I would organize it. So that helped immensely. Once I finally mapped everything out, I would have been done probably a year sooner had I done that. Okay, okay. So very good advice. Thank you. And then the third step is just write, just make a point to write. I try to do every day, but that was overwhelming. So even if I had a goal of, okay, if I could get a chapter done a week, then I'll be okay. happy. So it just keep it consistent, make it a habit that's reasonable with your schedule. So write everything out. Then once you have the full manuscripts, the next step is to find a content editor. And this is where, again, I wish I had had my publishing LLC and bank account ready because these, you know, they vary in price, but it's a service that you should absolutely pay for. And a content editor is someone who actually helps you organize your thoughts into a story arc or whatever in a way that makes sense. My content editor picked up on a lot of uh, redundancies where I repeat myself a lot. Okay. 
I never caught that, but she did. And she helped me restructure certain stories. I mean, I rearranged some chapters in a way that would make it more sense all because of the content editor. Um, so, and at first I didn't know, I didn't know about the different types of editors. So there's content editor. Once your content is how you want it to be, then the next step is to find a copy editor. So the copy editor is someone who uh, looks at things like grammar, spelling, typo, typos, all of that stuff, okay. maybe better ways to phrase certain things. So they look at more of the, the technicalities of just your typing, your writing and grammar. Okay, so the con going back to the content editor, she didn't give you any, or he uh, did not give you any information about the copy. It was just content. It was it was just the meat. She occasionally she would, but she wouldn't make any corrections. She would just say, "This is something your copy editor will have to look further into." So okay. she would highlight certain things, and I would leave those comments in my manuscript for my copy editor to make sure that is being cross-referenced or picked up on. Um, but yeah, she wouldn't She wouldn't just hop in and make any edits or corrections that were okay. grammatical. She would just make a note saying, hey, this is something your copy editor should look at, just a heads up. Okay, okay, okay. Um, so we had one, two, three, so four is, cop is content editor, five is copy editor, six. So once you have your, it's just a Word document of everything. So I had my, table of contents, outlines, my introduction, my chapters, my resources, references, uh, everything else basically there, the way I wanted it, edits were made. The next step then was to finally look at cover design and formatting. So I went to 99designs.com where okay. if you're familiar with, with that, um, where you basically post a project and, you know, for me, of course, it's cover design. So I gave the title. Um, I discuss in detail what the book was about. Um, and you can upload any pictures or images of inspiration you want the cover designer to use to create your cover. And then it's a week long um, project where it's a competition almost where all of these cover designers, you set a price. So obviously, the more money you're willing to pay, the higher level the cover designers are going to be entering into these contests. And then you just get all of these submissions throughout the week and you get to reject or, or comment and say, oh, I like this, but can we try this instead? So you get that's the so fun. It was a blast. I loved it. I loved seeing all of the designs that came in. And um, there are just so many talented designers out there. And that's how I found um, my, my cover designer, the woman who designed this. Um, what's so interesting is she came up with something completely unique that I, had, I didn't think of a Rubik's cube. She just came up with that because through my description, she was like, oh, wow, being a speech pathologist sounds like it's very much like a problem solving and Rubik's Cube, like it's multiple things. It's not just one thing. And that's what you're trying to express. So it was really cool the way she did that with barium, the brain, the lips, the lungs, um, you know, just all these different, the GI track, everything and using it as a Rubik's Cube um, to show that we really work with the whole system. And mm -hmm. it's really so I'm, I'm looking at the cover now. I can get it really close so people can see. So yeah, that's great. Did yeah. you, was it an actual Rubik's cube or is that that she photographed or just? No, I think it was just, uh, it was just a, a stock image that's, she must have had. I'm not sure. Yeah. Totally. With like the reflection and everything. I think it she, would be really fun for you to have it. <laughs> to actually try it. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you just gave me an idea. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd yeah. be a good way to um, promote it to these yes. universities. Yeah. Put it in someone's desk. Oh, what is that? Yes, so. I love that. I think that's the next thing I'm going to try to create. <laughs> so, yeah. So, that was, the next step was the cover design and then the formatting. My copy editor did the formatting. So, what I mean by formatting is just, um, where like, you know, the very, at the introduction of each chapter, you might notice that, you know, there's one letter, the first letter is the biggest letter and then it's formatted throughout the rest. And then there's an icon in each chapter. So she did all the formatting to just make okay. it look really nice um, and like a narrative style book. So my copy editor did that, but you might have to hire someone separate for that. So that's all just the aesthetics. So, okay. 
once you have, you know, the manuscripts, all the editing and structures done, cover design and formatting, you've got your publishing LLC and your bank account, then you finally get to upload everything and publish it. So I uploaded it on uh, Kindle Direct Publishing, which is Amazon's publishing. Okay. Um, so I, you know, did both paperback and ebook on Kindle Direct and then Ingram Sparks, which is a big distributor publishing company. So if you want your book in a bookstore, so my book's actually going to go into the University Barnes and Noble here in Lewisburg, uh, Pennsylvania. And so they're going to order it through Ingram Sparks. That's how they get all of their books for the bookstores. Okay. So okay. Those are the, the two uh, big, I would say, publishing routes for if you want to publish your book make sure at the very least, there are many other platforms. Uh, some are for like, uh, if you wanna, if people like to just rent books on e-libraries, you can upload them on those platforms for rentals, book rentals. But the two big ones I would recommend is Kendall Direct Publishing and Ingram Sparks. Okay. Um, you know, enjoy that. And then this is, this is an optional step for people. I did this, but not everyone does it, but I did have beta readers as a part of my process. Yes, because I think when we first spoke, you um, were just in the process of, I think maybe, did you have two sets of beta readers or, or just? Uh, yeah, no, I did. I think, well, maybe I, think alpha beta. Gosh, I forget how many beta readers I had, maybe 15 beta readers. Okay. Um, okay. Pretty much all of them were SLPs with experience in different parts of our field because I wanted that expert opinion and make sure, you know, hey, for my chapter on dementia when I talk about just uh, what SLPs can do and the process and, and what's evidence-based, but also making sure dignity is woven into the thread of the story. Like, what are your thoughts? Um, is what, what I'm talking about truly, I mean, the evidence-based or up-to-date or most appropriate thing to discuss? Or is there anything in my book that you caught and you're like, ooh, Lauren, you might want to you know, you might want to reapproach that in a different way or, or talk about this method instead, because I really want to do our field justice. I want to represent our field in the most appropriate way and, uh, you know, up-to-date way. So, because uh, they're also, you never know who's reading it too. So caregivers, loved ones, I don't want a caregiver loved one to pick this up and think, oh, I, I can just tell my loved one what to do based off this book and I can fix them. Right, you know? right, so, right. So making sure everything, so beta readers are important. And then I also had non-SLP beta readers to give me feedback on feedback on how readable is it? Could they follow it? Did they understand? Were they confused at any points and want to put the book down? Or were they captivated the whole time and they could actually understand and follow everything and then walk away knowing more and actually becoming a better advocate for speech pathology? Okay. And then after that, did you make a lot of changes or... Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, that, I, they're probably all in all, I think I've edited this manuscript over 20 times. Oh. Uh, there, there are chapters that I wrote prior or after sending to my content editor who it, I just got totally deleted, um, you know, because it just didn't, it didn't fit the overarching purpose of the book, which was, you know, what speech pathologists do and, and how, you know, you can help advocate uh, for the services. So, because some of them would just be fun stories, but no real description of the role of an SLP. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I had a lot of edits and that was, uh, that was a pill that I had to swallow at first. You know, my, it's just, you, when you're done with it, you spend all this time, it's, it's your baby. It's what you've been working on. It's a passion project. And then you send it to an expert editor, right. you know, and like, Ooh, you know, this is actually like, this makes no sense. This is out of order. What are you talking about here? <laughs> <laughs> that is it, it helps you grow though definitely oh oh I learned so much in this process and I'm, I'm better for it um it's you know that's how you with anything else that's how you learn you need an expert or someone who knows the ropes to help guide you along the way exactly exactly okay so um this is a, a good question. I like this one. If there is one must have that every author should invest in for writing a book, what would that be and why? Editors, hands down. There are, there are people who have written and published books without investing in a good editor. Um, and it's very obvious. Um, okay. And it's 
time consuming to go back and edit your book once it's been published. I have done that, but it's time consuming. Um, I will say for, for really good editors, it's, it can be expensive. It can be uh, uh, definitely pricey because it is a very long process and you're not going to be just sending the manuscript and they send it back to you with all these edits already done for you. It's, it's, you work with the editor where they fill your manuscript with all these comments and suggestions. They explain why you're rearranging things. You make the edits, send it back, and then they do it all over again after they review your edits. So it's a very time intensive process. So I would say if you have, if you have the, the, the financial ability to do so put aside money and, and I mean, even over a thousand dollars really for the editors, copy and content editors. Um, because in the end, I think that's completely worth it because it makes the book more readable. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I think it really helps uh, my ability to, to grab the attention of not just SLPs, but non-SLPs, which I really wanted to target and keep their attention. And I don't know if I could have done that as successfully if it wasn't for my content editor in particular. Okay. Okay. Uh, so that is a, and you'll see that I, you know, I, I joined Facebook groups for, for authors, nonfiction authors. And that is what everyone will say is no matter what, you know, if you want to try to design your own cover on Canva or find other ways to cut costs, fine, but do not cut the costs on a good editor because that person can really help you transform that book into something so much stronger. Okay. Well, thank you. Very good advice. And when you were shopping for your uh, content editor, did you narrow it down to two or three or did you just um, find one? Did you interview them or, or did you use recommendations from other people through your Facebook groups? Yeah, I, so I, yeah, through one of the Facebook groups that I'm in, I'm trying to remember which one it was, because I joined a lot of, of author Facebook groups. Um, there's one where they had a file and it was um, editors, designers, whatever that we recommend. So like top okay. recommended, reputable, has a good track record, the members of the Facebook group, like they've used them. So they, you know, then recommend them. Um, so I pulled a file from one of these Facebook groups that just had lists of contact information. And you do have to look at what genre those editors specialize in. So I was looking for, I got kind of stuck on what is that piece of my genre? It's not, it's kind of like a memoir, but it's also not just about me. It has contributor stories from all these other SLPs. So I know it's nonfiction, but for yes. trying to think that is so. I, um, you created your own genre. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a blended genre. (laughs) So, um, I, yeah, I, I used that file from one of these author Facebook groups and then just looked for basically nonfiction and memoir and particularly anyone who has medical, uh, memoir backgrounds. Okay how to find that specific genre. And then I reached out to her and she offered a free consultation so that she could go over exactly what her process is, who she works with, see if it matches with what you're wanting to do. She also sees if she is a good match for you, which I would think good content editors would do, um, hopefully. Um, and so after we had a discussion, I mean, it was it was really obvious to the both of us, I think that would be a really good fit for each other, mm-hmm. especially with her extensive backgrounds, knowledge in HIPAA and, and making sure that you are abiding by HIPAA standards when you are writing on a medical form because she's helped other authors do the same. So that's, that was kind of the winning choice for me was, was being able to pull her from that list of recommended editors from a reputable source on a Facebook group. Okay, okay. Great. Well, that, that makes sense. Okay. Um, let's see. What were the greatest barriers to writing this book? The biggest barrier, and I think a lot of people could relate to this is self-limiting thoughts. So thinking I'm not an author. Um, I can't represent an entire profession, especially speech pathology, because we have like 8 million different branches, (laughs) You know, so so who do I think I am to to write a book about speech pathology? Um, or you know, I'm am I a good enough writer? And then also the thoughts of what if I say something wrong? 
What mm-hmm. if I, I, um, you know, what if someone calls me out for saying something that could be misleading, completely unintentional on my end of things, because I'm not as experienced in that particular area that I'm writing about. <clears throat> so the self-limiting beliefs slowed me down. I really, there was a time where I, I didn't write for months and oh, I kind no. of, yeah, I, I had kind of just told myself like, it's okay if I don't finish this, you know, maybe someone else will do it. (laughs) No, no, I know. I know. But it was the self-limiting beliefs again. It was just this. And it was when I was getting closer to finishing the first draft of my manuscripts um, because it was becoming more real. Right. So you were really far along in the process. So what, how did you get over that? I, well, I had a lot of really good um, SLPs who, who knew what I was up to, people who were holding me accountable and even my Instagram group, that actually really helped. So I, I originally created my Instagram accounts as a way to find other SLPs who would want to share their stories for the book. Oh, okay. I didn't, I real, I didn't realize that. I thought you knew these SLPs. I didn't know. That's how you get them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Some of them I had worked with actually. Okay. Um, and they either reached out to me once they learned what I was doing and like, Oh my gosh, yeah, I would love to share. Or I reached out to them individually based on me knowing their experience by working with them. Okay. Um, so there were definitely quite a handful that I, I did work with at one point or another, but then okay. a bunch of others, I've never met them at all. I, I did have uh, several people reach out to me on Instagram and met in the message because I would do something where as soon as a story contributor submitted their story to me and we went through the editing process together, I would then feature them on a spotlight on my Instagram accounts to you know celebrate, oh, we have another story contributor. This is who this person is. This is their topic. Here's a sneak peek of what they wrote You know, to kind of hook people in a little okay. bit. So people would see that I was doing this and it actually led to a couple SLPs messaging me saying, hey, you know, I'm really curious. Um, do you need any stories on brain injury? Because I, I really have some great stories that I could share that shows kind of what speech therapists can do in brain injury or head and neck cancer. Um, so it, it works. And, you know, I was able to get a couple people to come in and reach out to me, which is just so wonderful. Um, through doing that. And that helps you hold me accountable too. Right. So then when you were having these self-limiting thoughts, they were like, oh no, this, we, we want to see that book. We want to read that book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the fact that they put their time into it too, you know, I didn't want that to be for nothing. So right. it's, it's really, really appreciated the fact that anybody would be willing to sit down and, and write their experience. That takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that they did that, I, it was kind of like, well, I, I don't want to let them down. They've committed, they've submitted their story to me. So I need to finish what I started. And then also still constantly hearing people say the same old, same old, whenever I'd introduce myself and me kind of getting tired of having to explain myself, I'm like, oh, you know, it'd be really nice if I could just hand them a book. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's great. Um, so what has the reaction been so far to the book? So you published it about uh, six weeks ago. Yeah, May fifth, May fifteenth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, really, re- surprisingly positive. Um, you know, because you never know; it's always terrifying. I, I hit. It is, but I'm not surprised. I would. That's the only thing I'll disagree with you about. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Yeah, I, again, it's those self-limiting beliefs, right? It's like, you always think you could do so much better, so much more, but then once you actually get with people's feedback, it was just, again, really overwhelming. I've had, again, my um, high school English teacher who ended up volunteering for the university to do a swallow study for the students, she wrote me an email and she, I mean, it was just, it almost had me in tears basically because she was just saying how she laughed and she cried and she learned new things and it actually motivated her now. She's like, I know people that have family members that can benefit and I had no clue they could have benefited from your services and I doubt they do too. She's like, so you have a new advocate now for, for speech therapy. You know, it's so powerful what your profession is capable of and I just had no clue. And she even had, family members who had had a neck cancer in the past oh, wow. or dementia. Um, so she was semi, like she, she was familiar with what a tracheostomy was and she was familiar with the, her family member not being able to speak with a tracheostomy. So, um, you know, she's like, I just wish I knew then what I learned from your right. body, you know, to have been a better advocate. 
So the responses like that, those are things that give me the fuel and the motivation and just the spark of joy to continue, uh, continue to educate and market really through mm-hmm. storytelling, because it seems to have such a, a positive impact. And I've also had several universities reach out to me, um, asking, you know, letting me know that, Hey, we really want to incorporate your book into you know, our intro to CSD course so that students can get a, a broad idea, a broader idea, um, of what our profession is capable of and what it looks like in action, you know, real stories in the field, in action, a day in the life of primarily medically based SLPs, although there are some school-based um, kind of sprinkled in there. So that's been really exciting because that's my big goal is to get it into universities because at the same time, it is a book that I wish I had as a student. I'm just going to say the same thing. That's what I, as I was reading it, I really thought, I wish I had known about this. Just even some of the different applications like um, end of life care. Um, which was not part of my graduate program. Um, and then the, the prison, um, mm-hmm. the, the prison system, SLPs in the prison system. Um, that's something that I was never exposed to. So um, yeah. yeah, there are a lot of stories like that that I think that could really help, um, especially the undergraduates. Um, Cause I think the graduate students know a little bit more about the field by the time they've committed to it. but. Um, even for potential internships or even your, um, the travel therapy, that was, um, that's helpful to students. So, okay, well, um, one more question. Um, do you plan to use the book as a launching pad for any future business opportunities or goals? Yes. And I was, I'm so excited about it. This it's, I think for, for many SLPs, you know, especially the pandemic, We've had a lot of unexpected, unwanted changes in our career path. Um, so for me, I never saw myself not working in a hospital. That was, I was like, oh, I will die working in a hospital. I love working in the hospital. However, when my husband and I moved across the country for his job, which was right as the pandemic was hitting, there were no jobs available. So this kind of helps to push me into changing how I do things. So now, especially with this book, um, and seeing the responses I've been getting from universities and from non-SLPs, I really want to turn this into um, kind of like a, a marketing business where I want to help um, healthcare business owners, entrepreneurs, particularly SLP business owners and entrepreneurs. I want to help them uh, market their services, their business, whatever it is they offer through digital storytelling, uh, market through basically just the power of storytelling and the elements of storytelling that results in like what the neuroscientist uh, experienced and studied with how the right story can really cause people to then go into post-narrative action where they then will make that decision to um, you know, go to you for their therapy or use your online services, learn from you, you know, download your course or your book or whatever that you might offer as an SLP or healthcare business owner. Uh, because I really believe that so many healthcare, healthcare workers, healthcare providers um, have so many strengths and gifts, but we struggle to really market ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's particularly outside of just saying, well, these, you know, this is what I do. I help individuals who have small impairments due to stroke and cancer and fact, 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 facts, um, you know, and I, I want to help mold that for people to really get more referrals or more customers or whatever it may be by marketing through storytelling and creating a funnel through that. So that's what I'm learning now is, is I'm kind of pivoting since I can't do my work in my passion field and hospital, I want to help others now succeed in their work through the power of storytelling. Well, that is wonderful. And you have helped so many people through your book. So um, you will continue to help um, and so many people through through the field of speech language pathology. That was, that was one thing that as I was reading it, I was like, wow, she really um, has helped so many different people. I think with the travel therapy and being in so many different settings for the number of years you've been in the field, you have really been in a lot of different settings and have been able to help people. And one thing that I loved about you and, re- and I could see through your book is everything that you do, you dive into 100%. 
So, you know, when someone needed an AC device, you didn't just go find an expert who could come in and but no, 100%, you, you got the device and you learned how to use it and you taught everyone in the hospital how to use it, um, how to communicate, how to help her communicate so with it. So um, I do have on my phone here, um, because we've had a little bit of a technical difficulty with the chat, um, I have some questions. So Megan asked, we talked about this a little bit, but what was the hardest part of writing your book? We talked about the biggest barrier, but what was the hardest part? It was honestly, I think for, it was knowing where to start um, because you think, oh, I'll open a Word document and then I'll just write. But I, especially because my, most of my work experience in a career is, you know, oh, let me find the evidence, the research, let me find the protocols. I have to have a protocol to, you know, to see yes. to that. that is we love our to, protocols. We love <laughs> our protocols. And really, especially if it's, if it's a book that no one's written before, if it's your story, whatever it is you want to write about, you're not going to have a protocol on how to write your story. And so I think one of the other challenges was being able, I'm not the most organized person. I'm someone who has 25 tabs open on like three different windows and my inbox is always flooded. So I'm not the most organized. So being able to organize my thoughts in a way that'll make sense to other people outside of myself, I think that was one of the biggest challenges. But now that I've done it, um, it's much easier. So, you know, once you actually go through the process, you know, it really, I've kind of come up with my own protocol for how to at least organize thoughts and help people with storytelling. So yeah, organization of thought basically, and, and get breaking away from the, what's the protocol, what's the formula to do this. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, um, that makes sense. And that is very good for uh, anyone interested in writing a book that, you know, they'll end up in the, the same place. Probably that'll probably be their, the hardest hurdle that they'll have to overcome. So that's helpful. Okay. So Andrea commented, stories are powerful in helping families, caregivers understand. And I think that comment came in at the beginning of the uh, presentation before you talked a lot about that yourself. So um, that reinforces that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it 100% stories. And if you can add visuals too, as well, I mean, just when it comes to educating family members, uh, especially, yeah, I mean, she's exactly right. That's just, just a perfect comment, you know, being able to share, um, it helps to get family members to better empathize maybe yes. with yes. loved ones and also better understand that um, like if there's a breakdown in communication or uh, maybe their behavioral changes because of a traumatic brain injury for family members to not take it personally, you know, that it's something that's wrong with them or they're, they're not doing something right. And to be able to use the power of storytelling and examples to help really show them, no, you know, this is really the result of a traumatic brain injury or aphasia, which is a really complex process and with the brain and, you know, instead of using technical details. So I 100% agree with that. One story that really highlighted that was um, the SLP, who I believe was your friend, who um, experienced a traumatic brain injury herself, right? Before yes. clinical fellowship, I think it was. Laura Morgan, yes. Yep. That's she, an amazing story. Yes. I mean, it was, what was it? She was working on her clinical fellowship, and I mean, she was so close to getting her C's. And in that story, it talks about the, uh, the accident, the car accident that she got into, the induced coma. She was placed in tracheostomy, tube feeds, severe traumatic brain injury. Um, and she doesn't remember. And she didn't remember the hospital stay, even though she was there for, I mean, I think three months. Wow. Um, I don't remember any of it. And so I write, I share her story. I interviewed her um, and, and wrote her story in the chapter about traumatic brain injury. And it's just so inspirational to see where she is now as a certified brain injury specialist, SLP with her C's doing incredible things, presents, um, at ASHA state conferences, been a part of NIH funded research. Um, and she uses her experience, her stories to really help patients who have survived traumatic brain injury and who are navigating kind of the new life to better understand what to expect and to better explain what they are currently experiencing through her stories. Yeah, it's an amazing story. 
Um, and you do such a great job in telling it um, in the book. So um, I think we have one more question. Have you had any previous clients reach out after publication? Um, no, I haven't had any previous clients reach out yet. I'm still in the process. So um, all of the clients that I have written about, um, I am sending them a free copy. And so um, once, and that's a, such a long process because I'm handwriting everything. I've got maybe wow. 32 books that I'm sending out in handwriting stuff. So I have not had any previous clients reach out yet, but I have gotten my, the previous clients that I was in communication with in the process of writing the story because they've read the chapters and I let them know that I was in the, the process of publishing. Um, they have, have said just wonderful things, words of support. Um, and they're very excited to share the book with friends, caregivers, loved ones um, to kind of help continue to advocate for speech therapy because of course they, they love speech therapy uh, so much and, and, and know the benefits of it since they received the services. Absolutely. And I'm excited to share this book with some of my own family members and some of my very good friends who, um, when I, they know I'm a speech therapist or a speech language pathologist, but I don't necessarily use the term SLP hmm. uh, with them. So when I've said, oh, my podcast is keys for SLPs, they say, what's an SLP? I'm like, what's an SLP? But they also don't really understand all the different areas um, that we can work in. So I'm really excited to get a few more copies as well. Um, all right. Well, we are just about out of time. I want to thank you for being our first live guest um, and for writing this book and for being such an advocate for our field. Um, you really have been such a wonderful and you continue to be such a wonderful contributor um, and mentor to so many. So thank you very much for coming on our show today. Oh, and thank you so much for inviting me. I love talking about this and I, I love also just learning about this new podcast and the opportunities that are available. I just feel really honored to be a part of this. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And um, for our listeners and our viewers, um, please don't forget to log into speechtherapypd.com and complete all the course modules so you can get your credit. Um, if you want live credit, you need to do that within the next 24 hours. So, all right. Well, thank you very much. Take care. Right. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.